0: Cheers, and welcome to the Discord's podcast, a fun and an informative look at the world of wine, spirits, and all things drink-related. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. Coming up, an interview with legendary sommelier-turned-winemaker Rajat Par. Before we get to that, though, I have something I want to talk about. Now, yesterday, the New York Times ran a piece by Jeff Gordoner about the growing success of natural wine, a piece that perhaps doesn't look at the phenomenon with much in the way of a critical eye. That's fine, of course. Trend pieces are what they are. Yet I do think that as the hype train for natural wine starts gathering speed, it's important to be clear about a few things. The first is that natural wine is a really poorly defined term that encompasses both vineyard practices like organic and biodynamic farming, as well as minimal sulfur additions and aging wines in neutral vessels. Now, all these are already really long-standing practices in many wine regions, and must, many of the best wines in the world are made exactly this way. And up until very recently, no one cared to call that anything other than just winemaking. Now, all that is well and good as long as the wine is, well, good. Too often, however, I try natural wines that are acclaimed because they are interesting, whether or not they taste good. Well, as a professional, I can kind of appreciate a certain degree of uniqueness for the sake of uniqueness, because I try a lot of wine and sometimes it gets kind of boring. Sloppy winemaking can't be excused by playing the natural wine card. For example, read what Gardner writes in his piece, and I quote, "'Natural wines can taste tart, dirty, even barnyardy, "'and that might be 100% intentional. Indeed, such traits may be integral to the beauty of the poor, and this is where the assurances of an expert come in. Without the new breed of sommeliers and shop owners who really know the natural terrain, it can take time to figure out whether a wine seems off, or if it actually is. Now, it's perhaps unsurprising that sommeliers and other experts are kind of constantly looking for wines that affirm our expert status. After all, what could validate our existence more than a whole style of wine where the average wine drinker can't even tell if the wine is flawed or not? When you factor that in with the fact that bottle variation with natural wines, meaning the uh, sort of differences between one bottle to the next, even from the same exact vintage, uh, can be extremely high, it's hard for me to make a case that these are wines for most wine drinkers. That's fine, of course, I like weird shit, but I don't necessarily think that filling a wine list or store with those bottles is really in anyone's interests. Beyond that, natural wine has become something more nefarious, a marketing tool. Whether it's a wine club that touts low-sulfur wines that won't give you a hangover, despite no evidence to that effect, or a ridiculous contraption you can buy that promises to strip out artificial chemicals in wine while leaving the taste intact, wine drinkers are being inundated with the same ridiculous pseudoscience that plagues the food world. In my eyes, the single most important thing a winemaker can do is to make the best possible wine they can with the materials they have at hand, a wine that expresses a sense of place and time. Often, that wine won't be natural, or at least require minimal intervention, but if a winemaker sacrifices quality at the altar of ideological purity, that's a wine I'll know to avoid. If you'd like to read more, please visit my website, www.vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V, or follow me on Twitter at z that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. And now, on with the show. Rajat Par is one of the true icons of the American wine scene. From his influential role as wine director for Michael Mina's Restaurant Empire to winning a James Beard Award for his book, Secrets of the Sommeliers, his fierce love for wines with balance and a sense of place has helped broaden the American palate. Now, as proprietor for Domaine de la Cote in the Santa Rita Hills and Seven Springs Vineyard in the El Amity Hills, he gets to put those ideas into practice and into bottles. Thanks for joining me, Raj. How are you?
1: Hey, thank you, Michael. It's great, great to be
0: on the show. Excellent. Um, so I I think the first question I have for you, um, since you're sort of in this period of of your career as a as a winemaker, um, is, I think, sort of what what draws you to um, make wine the places you do in uh, in uh, Santa Rita Hills in the Ole Amity? Um, are, are what draws you to a, a region and uh, to maybe to particular vineyard sites?
1: Yeah, first of all, you know, it was it was completely out of just uh, fate. I, I, I didn't plan. I never thought I'd be living here in, in Los Alamos and the Santa Barbara area because I was, you know, so deeply involved in restaurants, but just kind of fate just took me down this path. And and uh, I fell in love with the wines here through the wines of Jim Clendenin at Obon Klima. And I tasted a bunch of, uh, you know, older wines from him. And I was like, wow, this is like amazing how this wine has so much, so much, you know, Structure and, and some acidity and and that kind of drew me towards uh, San Rita Hills and uh, I tried to you know I tried other places and and every time I tried something else I'm like wow I still think of San Rita Hills uh, and when I had Jim's uh, some of his wines from the early 90s and I was like wow this is completely so fresh and so vibrant still after you know at that time I was like 10 15 years old. So that was my first uh, attempt for Chardonnay when I started to make some wine with Jim in 2004, and, we, and then till '08, and then '09 we started uh, Sandy. And at the same time, uh, I was working with Sashi, and we were working on a vineyard for Eveningland in the San Rita Hills, which we took over, and now is called Domaine de la Cote. That's our estate vineyard in the in the San Ritter Hills. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we took over all of uh, evening land in 2014. So then we kind of have the Seven Springs Vineyard there. So we have two estate properties: Seven Springs in Eolamity Hills and Domaine de La Cote in the Centerville Hills. And then Sandy is the Nigos, all for purchase grapes.
0: Gotcha. So what's the what's the principal difference between those two vineyard sites? I mean, besides the fact that one's in California and one's in Oregon. But uh, you know, to to what extent is is uh, far, are farming those vineyards and, and making wine from those vineyards. How, how different is the process?
1: Oof, it's, it's extremely different. It's uh, uh, what the Eola Hill is one's dry farmed. Dumindalakoth is young vines, and it's, of course, irrigated. Uh, Dumindalakoth is uh, on the soils are all uh, shale, uh, diatomaceous base soils versus Eolamid Hills, all volcanic soil. Uh, here on the coast in Santa Barbara, we have maritime climate, Oregon, we have continental climate, so farming is quite different. We have to plow and basically keep no cover crop through the season. In San Ray Hills, it's so dry versus in uh, Oregon, the pretty high-vigor soils. So we have to keep more of uh, cover crop. So the farming is quite different. The idea is the same, though. Both are organically farmed. Uh, Seven Springs is farmed biodynamically since... 2008 thanks to Dominic Lafon who was a consultant there for several years. Uh, the idea is the same uh, you know uh, You know, but just making the wine is also a little bit different. We use much more whole cluster here in San Rita Hills because our pHs are quite low here and stems are much much thinner and clusters are smaller and, and in, in Oregon We can kind of mostly de-stem. There's some whole cluster with we just see it's, the idea there is mostly destemmed, and maybe some whole cluster. And the idea here in Sonoma Hills is mostly whole cluster and maybe a little destemming. So uh, the cellar work is almost same, uh, mostly pump over, mostly by infusion. Uh, Elevage time is pretty similar, same barrel program. Uh, so you know, you know, you know, the ideas of making the wine the same. It's just. Uh, the fruit is quite different. The clusters are quite different. The plant material is quite different.
0: Do you have, are you working with uh, different clonal selections as well in each site? Uh,
1: there are, uh, of course, in Oregon, there's all different kinds of different clones, and uh, versus in Century Hills, it's mostly heritage selection, so it's mostly uh, non-clonal material. So mostly uh, Swan, cholera, and Mount Eden. From uh, from older vineyards, so not really uh, no Dijon material. Okay. So quite okay. different versus in, in 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 Oregon, it's all there's Dijon and Pomart and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's and Van Uh So different plant material also, and a lot of Seven Springs is own rooted also. So. Oh okay. Yeah.
0: Are you also noticing? I mean, is there a is there more sort of variation vintage to vintage in either site are they are they similarly um, unpredictable i mean my my rather um sort of just my guess would be that you probably see maybe more variation in uh in oregon than you do in in santa rita but i, I don't i don't know that yeah
1: yeah yeah for sure anytime you have a climate, a continent climate uh content climate where there is you could have extreme heat or rain or you know uh, you know, different uh, weather conditions. It's definitely the the vintage variation is huge because uh, some villages are very warm and some are, you know, maybe rain or not. So that's you know, the same in, in Burgundy and when in, and on the coast we have maritime climate, so we are guaranteed always a very cool summer. Uh, there is vintage variation, of course, but they are much uh, much less than. Mm-hmm than in Oregon, just because the summer months, there are not too many surprises we get. Our surprises come usually maybe in April, May, during flowering, during, uh, you know, or in bud break and that kind of stuff. And it gets really cold, like in 2015, we had a very cold May and flowering was a disaster and we got a very small crop, so. But the quality is high and it's just just, a, the big difference is the two climates.
0: Is there a different uh, degree of or type of disease pressure in the two sites as well?
1: Well, they both have pretty high mildew pressure, just because in the last couple of years. Uh, so, so you know, again, we are blessed; it's not as bad as in in, in Burgundy. You know, yeah. you know, we haven't had hail, touchwood. So, so mm-hmm. if you, you know, so yeah, there's disease pressure in both places. So. Uh, that doesn't change. Peter Noir is that's just the name of the game there for the It's Tinscombe variety after you know it's just, it's just what it is.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's fickle and uh difficult to work with which I guess makes yeah. you know people like you at least a little bit crazy for for trying in the first place. <laughs> um do you yeah, do you feel fun. like do you feel like now that you're you're really a winemaker that you you see wine differently. Um, you know, when you open a bottle at home or, or in any kind of context, is it, do you, is the way you look at it different than, uh, the way you looked at it when you were a sommelier?
1: Yeah, I guess you're more forgiving <laughs> than, you, than you were. Cause you know, when you're a sommelier, you're judging everything. And I guess when you're making wine, you're, you of course, everyone judges everything. That's just human nature. But you know, I think that, you know, uh, I've always been more forgiving, and now I just kind of always think of you know the place and and the person who made it and I think the connections are deeper now because you know it's it's just you know you have you when you start making wine and you know you 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 have friends who you know you make friends by people who' tasted your wine and you have a connection with them it's the same way my connection with the people I've who I uh, have tasted the wines and then meet them and then it's a, it's a very emotional connection.
0: Is it interesting to be kind of on the opposite side of things as a as a wine seller now, to to sort of sit in front of sommeliers or other buyers and, and have them kind of judge your wine instead of you know, being the one critically <laughs> looking at the wine?
1: Yeah, it's it's yeah you know it it is what it is. So it comes to the territory. I I try to just kind of present the wine and just kind of talk about the place and you know hope for the best. It's just it's not you know I don't, I don't have a show. I don't have a uh, you know, I rarely even have a text sheet on wine. <laughs> I just know what I know in my mind, or something written down on the phone. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's good. It's you know, it's uh, it's mother nature. You just deal with that. So
0: yeah. Well, I think that's a really a, a good point because I think you know we're we're at this sort of interesting point in the wine industry where um, it, it seems to me, at least, you know, especially I, I notice it here in Washington more and more, and I think you know throughout the U.S. to some extent, and, and you know, probably internationally too, that more and more winemakers seem to be, I guess coming to grips with the fact that there's only so much they can control in the first place, um, that, you know, Mm -hmm. you're growing grapes. And, and so, you know, I think you're seeing more interest in, you know, natural wine as a, as a broad, or as a, maybe a narrow definition and also just sort of a broader category of wines that are, let's say less manipulated or controlled than, than a previous generation of wines. I know that's a, it's obviously a lot of uh, a lot to unpack there, but, um, you know I, I think it would be fair to kind of call your wines if not out and out natural in the sort of uh, small cult way that that has come to mean but but they're definitely wines of I think wines of nature is maybe a good way to say it,
1: yeah I mean I think that I think that's just the future of of wine because I mean you know what we eat and drink uh, is under scrutiny now by everyone and and as it should be because we are actually you know. Uh, we are we are more concerned about our health than I guess we were, you know, in the war era. Because you know, uh, you know, what? after after the 70s and 80s, you know, when when as the world got more affluent, there's more, you know, there's there's just more reasons to live than is you know during during the wars World War One and Two and after that, you know, there was you know. we didn't really care what we ate and drank and now we do so I think that and we also want to you know hopefully I mean the way the world's going I'm not sure if it's going to end up there but hopefully we hope that we can make this place better than you know when we found it Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the whole idea so if we took a vineyard and and the vineyard was you know not organically farmed the goal is to take it over and kind of you know nurture it and make it live for a long time and that comes from Organic viticulture, biodynamic principles, and that's definitely our goal in, in, in the in the in the vineyard. And then also make the wine, you know, very conscientiously and honestly, and without additives and chemicals and you know all that kind of stuff, which you know uh, you don't really need. Uh, you could use it, of course, if there's, but you don't need it. So definitely, uh, we will try to do things uh, the right way, and I think that that is the the road of future and many people are on the path and many are slowly adopting and uh, you know it's a generational thing so
0: does it feel like that's also it's kind of worked hand in hand with consumers getting a little bit more comfortable with um you know the kind of not just the ethos behind mm-hmm. organic and biodynamic farming but sort of this idea of um you know just, just as people are more, as you said, more interested in what they're eating and, and drinking and other in other things besides wine, you know, this idea that that they can support the kind of agriculture and um, agricultural processes that they care about with you know buying wine that is made in a way that they would maybe um, feel good about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's it's definitely you know people are you know reading a lot more. Uh, of course, social media, it's, you know, you could you know, spread anything from a truth or a lie within seconds, let's put it on, uh, any, any social media platform. So people are a lot more aware of what's happening. And, and I especially say the, the younger generations, they are a, a very different than, than, than the past. So, you know, I, I think that is, this is, this is the way it's going to be. And, uh, uh unfortunately, uh, these kind of extreme wines in either direction have their faults uh, commercial wine, industrial wine, tastes just like whatever, it tastes just like, you know, uh, a cocoa can, a of, you know, whatever, or mm-hmm. some kind of a stupid drink and versus there's a lot of uber national wines which have their own faults. And so, you know, and then I think the path is, you know, m- Somewhere in the middle, where you kind of pay attention to little things and kind of you know tweak things by without manipulating them, you know just using the right temperature and and cleanliness and those kind of things. and then then you're in you're in the middle, you're like you know producing wines which are from the place and speak of the place, but still are not, you know have a lot of issues because when you're making wine with lower levels of sulfur and without, Additives—you're always exposing yourselves to, you know, stuff, you know, bacteria and different things. So, you know, I think that it's that's just, you know, it's it's also risky winemaking, and and that's good. And you know, it's also but it comes from the vineyard. The vineyard is the most important part, and and then from there you kind of, you know, take care of the grapes.
0: Is it also that you have to have sort of a, a high enough quality of grape material to be even able to kind of take those risks in the first
1: place? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you have to have, you know, you have to have the right place, uh, the right grapes grown the right way, uh, being sent to you uh, in the right way at the right temperature. Uh, it, it ha- you, know, you know, a good site is only going to make a good wine. A good site is not going to make exceptional great wine it has to be the place uh, again uh you know it, you, you can make a good wine from a poor site with a lot of makeup but in its naked form you can't you have to you know add you know if you want to just take some you know average vineyard and you know add of stuff to it and put a lot of you know new oak and pick it ripe whatever you could find could make an acceptable wine but in a in a true form a great vineyard if you do nothing to it should produce at least a good if not a great wine.
0: Mm-hmm. And you can't uh you can't make a great wine from a from a crappy vineyard no matter what which means I think probably keep keep away from any uh Charles Shaw natural wine. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to change gears slightly here um and talk a little bit about um some of your history because I think um you know it's fascinating to me how people kind of come to the world of wine and and might a question that I love to ask people who are who are wine lovers and and are in the industry is, um, what's the first bottle of wine that you remember being captivated by, and whether that's as a professional or as a as an amateur drinker or whatever? I just I'm curious if there's something that stands out in your past as kind of the a wine that that really kind of opened your eyes.
1: Yeah, there were several, but one definitely which I've mentioned many times, and uh, I think it was maybe exactly like 20 years ago. Uh, Around 20 years ago, maybe sometime in 96, in the winter of 96, when uh, I tasted uh, 86 Rabineau, Chablis, Le Clos, and mm. I was kind of like, wow, this is, I had no idea why wine could, you know, be like this. And, you know, it was definitely an epiphany wine. And, you know, it was, it was just opened my eyes. And I just, like, luckily, it was kind of ironic, I don't know, that I, I went straight to Burgundy. There was like, when I got into wine when I started working in Rubicon. I was straight to Burgundy. There was no, nothing else. So, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: that's that is not a bad wine to have your eyes open by. I feel like it's a good yeah. one to, to pour for people who are like, oh, you know, I don't drink Chardonnay. I think if you right. if you try that wine and or a wine like that and you're not you're not on board, then uh, well, then I don't know. I'm not sure how much hope there is. <laughs> yeah not much so actually i think that's a really a really good um point because i think you know as from my perspective um you know doing uh working as a sommelier writing and, and doing podcasts and all this stuff in the in the wine industry i feel like um you know there's this, there's a sort of pressure from one side of or one part of the community that's kind of constantly looking at Um, what's new and what's undiscovered. And you've got people out beating the bushes in every last corner of Europe trying to find, you know, varietals that no one's ever heard of and wines from places that no one can find on a map. And sometimes they find really great stuff. That's not to knock that. And I think there's a a part of discovery that's, that's fun. But I I do wonder if there's a, there's a danger in sort of um, wine, uh, I don't know, geek uh, world, if, if for lack of a better term of, of sort of turning our back on or forgetting about the, the places that really, um, have an incredible history of making wine. I don't know. Do you do you get do you get sort of burned out on, um, you know, the newest wine from the Dalmatian coast or whatever?
1: <laughs> you know, I, to be honest, I I, um, I try to stay connected as much as I can, but I can't. There's there's so much happening. It. I mean, you know, twenty years ago when I was when I was starting off, there was you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Germany, you know. Uh, in California, for the most part, that was pretty much it. There wasn't like, you know, even Austrian wines weren't that much, champagne was just so. You know, the, now it's like, you know, you know, Austria, Jura, Beaujolais. I mean, it's, those are those are those are now mainstream wines. Yeah. They were not. They were not. There was no one drank Jura back then. I mean, Auvernois was available, by the case, no one cared about it back then. I mean, all the wines today of like, you know. Claude Rougeard and Auvernois and, you know, Metras, all these, these were like, whatever. I mean, so now we've come into a different era. There's, there's all these new discoveries and there's always something new. So, you know, I try to stay on top of it, but it's, it's hard. It's, 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 there's so much out there, you know, and, and especially if you're focused on yourself and making wine and growing grapes, it's tough to, you know, but I try to kind of, you know, taste as many things and, uh, see fun things in in shops or from traveling in europe uh try to kind of but there's always something new and uh yeah it's it's crazy just trying to keep up is something else
0: yeah it, it's i think it's gotten to the point where there's a, there's sort of this uh, this game that's kind of fun to play where someone says you know oh have you tried this and i try and figure out if they're actually if it's actually even a real thing or not like i feel like you could start making them up and and start talking about, you know, the, this great, you know, varietal that no one's ever tried from, you know, the, I don't know, uh, pick, pick whatever part of Eastern Europe you want. And, and it's got better than even odds that it may or may not even exist. Um, not to say that there's not great wine out there. I think it's cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now with, uh, with the new book. Obviously, uh, secrets of the sommeliers was, uh, was a, a big success, uh, won the James Beard award, which is uh, pretty awesome. Um, and I think really had a, a really, um, a lot to sort of say about the the world of wine sort of through the lens of a sommelier um, at a time when people were really interested in viewing the world of wine that way. Um, so what is the what is the new book you're working on and, and what can you tell me about it?
1: Yeah, the new book, the, the title is The Atlas of Taste uh, and we've been working on it for uh, a full, like a year but I've been thinking about it for probably five, six uh, just after the, the first book and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people who taste wine today, uh, you know, spend a lot of time on the nose of the wine, and 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 really kind of, you know, the palate is not that important. And many people are, you know, so this whole book is just about like, you know, how and why wines taste the way they taste. So from the soil perspective, you know, how do you get this tension, how do you get this tannin, how do you get this, you know, how do you get this, um, this, this, the crunch and you know those things so we're gonna to try to talk about you know how and why uh, they come out from the soil so right. it's a it's a it's a somewhat of a deep topic try to make it fun and trying to make it educational and things you've learned on the way there's lots of fun stories and and uh, yeah should be should be good
0: excellent and and is the idea then that like it give it can sort of I mean my my, under, my very uh, vague understanding of the idea is that there's also going to be you can talk a little bit about sort of maybe you know, benchmarks or sort of um what, yeah what establishes um a, like a varietal por- uh, profile yeah, for yeah a great... it's
1: it, exactly it's only it's only classic wine so it's only so this this first book is only uh europe and only certain regions which which truly identify themselves mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's there won't be uh, much about, you know, uh, anything new, new region. There's, of course, new wines, but, you know, only classics, only, you know, can taste and smell certain things from certain places. So it'll, it's, it's definitely geared towards the taster, and It's more about the palate. It's more about the, the taste of wine than the smell of wine, which is mostly what most people talk about is the smell of wine. This is more about the taste of wine.
0: And it sounds like maybe a lot the sort of structural elements of that wine, too, that, that kind of how it impacts your palate um, as well yeah. as, you know, those things. Do you do you have, like, uh, if you ha- if you can throw one or two out of examples of, like, like I, I love to talk to people about, like, if they want to understand what, like, what tannin is in a wine. I mean, you can go to, you know, Napa Cab and, and taste a lot of oak tannins, but if you want to taste, like, just grape tannins, like, I pour people, you know, Barolo or Barbaresco, and I'm like, okay, now feel what this does and obviously there's a lot of acidity in those wines too but are there are there a few like of those kind of classic wines or regions that you love to point out to people
1: oh yeah i mean of course burgundy burgundy is well represented but also you know everything from uh, you know the jura and Beaujolais, like and, and the loire loire is an example of you know why is, you know, Mont-Louis and Bouvray different, you know? Mm-hmm. How do they compare to uh you know Samour or for example Samur Champagne? you know, how does that Cabernet Franc differ from, you know, Chino or Bourgois? So things like that. And and also talking about, you know, different uh, different areas within, you know, like we have we're going to go into Piedmont in the fall this year and kind of, you know, talk about all the crews, important crews, and you know how the limestone soils versus the sand versus the blue clay. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting.
0: Awesome. Sounds like a fun trip.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Should be good. Indeed. So, um, as far as obviously you're, you know, you're, you've got the the vineyards in. Um, Santa Rita Hills and uh in the Ulamet Hills are there other places in the world you'd like to make wine if you get the chance
1: uh no no I don't think so I think this is already two places it's it's already a struggle to go back and forth and more again and 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 you know so I think that's pretty much it no more uh, winemaking journeys I think I think uh, I'm happy the way it is right now
0: <laughs> excellent well, that's really cool. Are there any other, it, maybe maybe not other parts of the world then, but if you could work with any other varietals, or you have, I mean, I, you seem you seem content with what you got, which is a good thing. But I'm just curious. yeah,
1: um, I think that Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay, they are pretty much the grapes we kind of will always specialize in, uh, and this is going to be our focus. Uh, you know, we make other things just for fun. You know, a little bit of Trousseau, got a little Pulsard coming next year, some Sauvignon. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I would love to uh, maybe get some some Savoie varieties just for fun, a little bit, just to see, you know, because these things kind of you learn, because you you know you learn how to grow the grapes and and how to make the wine, and and you know it's a process, but in a, in a small way, you know, I don't I don't think we are starting a huge
0: uh, so <laughs> crus. <laughs> Not, not 10,000 cases
1: of trousseau anytime soon? No, we make 100 some cases. Just, <laughs> just like a, little a little bit. Just a little bit to kind of just, you know, I mean, there's, you know, we don't want to, there's enough good trousseau and pulsar from the Jura. We enjoy that. And, you know, but it's just fun to kind of, you know, and when friends from those places come and taste the wine in California, they're like, wow, what the hell is this? It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's like, wow. You know, it's, it's fun. It's like, you know, you take a, you know, Stefan Tiso was here the other day and, you know, he had the, he had the Trousseau here. we a Trousseau pet nut, he tasted it and he's like, wow. he's He had never had a Trousseau pet nut, but, you oh, know, wow. there you go. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's fun for me, fun for him. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's what it is.
0: Excellent. Well, Raj, I really appreciate your time. Uh, best of luck with uh, obviously the the book as you put more uh, more work into it. And, and do you have a, a, a day or a, a release date or a, an idea when uh, people? Yeah, can find book?
1: probably end of twenty eighteen. Probably, okay. right. <laughs> That's a while. We'll wild.
0: We'll, 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 uh, we'll put it on the wish list on Amazon and then uh, and revisit back uh, at the end of twenty eighteen. There you go. Excellent. Cool. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Zachy. Thank you. Once again, thanks to my guest, Rajat Par. For more about his wines, visit sandywines.com, that's S-A-N-D-H-I wines.com, domaindelacote.com, or check him out on Twitter at Rajat Par. You can find secrets of the sommelier pretty much anywhere books are a thing, and it really makes a great gift. Similarly, if you're looking for a holiday gift for someone in the Seattle area, consider my wine classes and events. The upcoming Holiday Wine Spectacular will be a chance to try and buy amazing wines for yourself and others if you can share. For more information, visit my website, www.vinetrainings.com. That's Vine with a V. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ZJabal. That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. As well as subscribing to the Discord's podcast on SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening and cheers.